0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. As always, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, And I would like to officially invite you to come run and hike and bike on our amazing network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Our guest this week is Faith E. Briggs, who is a filmmaker and a runner and a fisher, but mostly is just an all-around remarkable person. So Brendan Leonard and I talked to Faith about her latest film called This Land, and we have a link to the film in the show notes of this episode, or you could probably just Google this land Doc," and Google will get you there. Brendan and I also talk to Faith about growing up and her running track and cross country and then transitioning into long distance running and trail running. And we also talk about our current, though not merely current, circumstances here in America. And so let's go ahead and get to our conversation with Faith, and we'll have Brendan go ahead and kick things off. Here we go. Okay, Faith Briggs, thanks for coming on Off the
1: Couch and being part of our little running podcast.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, um, I I met you at Banff in 2018, I think, Is that right, where you were um the film you had was Brotherhood of Skiing
2: yes mm-hmm. right?
1: you were mm-hmm. pr- you produced that and yes I think that was that your first film that was in in Banff
2: yes mm-hmm.
1: awesome that was just a just a fantastic film if but people can google that and watch it, it has nothing to do with running yeah. but it is uh um just a joy to watch and just a story of uh a group of African-American folks skiing taking ski trips and some of the joy of that and also some of the very bizarre things they faced uh in going to places like aspen in the was it in the 60s or 70s when they had the national guard called on them yeah in the they 70s they weren't doing anything it was like they just there was an uh, an article in the paper and um just because this group of people was going to come skiing they decided to have the national guard show up in aspen uh bizarre
2: <laughs> yeah just in case but
1: otherwise just if anybody's thought about how you know if you haven't thought about how much you love skiing in a while, I feel like that film will put it put it back in you. Um, anyway, sorry, that's a totally irrelevant lead in. But um, the reason I reached out to you was because i just seen your film, This Land, where you ran 150 miles across three national monuments, a pretty big uh, road trip, um, Cascade-Siskiyou National Monument in Oregon. Grand Staircase Escalante in Utah and Desert Mountains National Monument in uh, Southwest New Mexico. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that came about? I was, while well, watching the film, I wondered, did you have the idea first or were you were you sort of going, let's make a film about something and then start to put together this idea and look at maps and stuff like that? How did that come about?
2: Well, I think they came at the same time, actually, because I have a background in documentary filmmaking and um Addie Thompson, who you see in the beginning of the film, um, originally her and I, the plan was for us to run the whole thing together. And we were going to try to do about twice as much and then honestly just couldn't get the time away from our jobs and our lives to do that. Um, But we, she also um, has background as like being, um, she was the the tour producer for Jumbo Wild with Patagonia a few years back. So we were both in and around film quite a bit and outdoor film specifically quite a bit. And so I think, I mean, there was a time where I was like, so frustrated with not being able to figure out how to fund this thing and make people believe in the the vision that I was like, I'm going by myself with GoPros. Like I'm just going next week. And my mom like <laughs> talked to me out of it. She was like, she's like, if the goal is to have a wider conversation with more people, then having better production quality is probably gonna help you achieve that goal better, right? And I was just like, uh, mom, why are you so great? Right? <laughs> um, mom, associate producer. I know, right? Yeah, she's probably wow. gonna be like, I didn't get a credit. Um, but yeah, no, I think they kind of, as we were learning more about the national monuments and realizing that we didn't, we cared deeply and we didn't really understand all the, the, what was going on. We felt like if we could try to explore and learn as we went, we could share our learnings and our questions with other people who probably had the same questions, but weren't necessarily going to be able to go and ask them and explore them in the same way. Um, So that was our hope was that through the film we could bring the conversation to a wider audience and ideally um invite more people to weigh in on the possibilities um it took us two years to to actually get out and and do it so we immediately were like this is urgent we're going next week and then you know trying to pre-produce a film doesn't yeah. usually work that way
1: um, <laughs> and there are also there are more issues than just public lands that discussed in the film um just inclusion of people of color in feeling welcome at you know national monuments national parks state parks and the history of segregation a little bit um i'd like to get into that later but i kind of want to go back into your so this film you do 150 miles of running in three national monuments and so it sounds like your typical day was probably around 20 miles or over i mean like i think you you say a couple stats and they're like maybe mile 26 at one day um So, you do a couple long runs, like mostly long runs, correct?
2: Yeah, we were trying to average 20 miles a day. um, And that's a whole thing. We didn't want to be like running a marathon a day because we felt like people would get distracted by like, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of a marathon or the distance like that. And then we did like just get lost and squirrely and day one ended up running 26. (laughs) And we are like, oh my gosh, is this what every day is going to be like? Um, But yeah, they were definitely... um, Yeah. On average, I think we still ended up right around a 20 to 22 mile days days, most of the time.
1: And you, so you were not, you did not grow up a distance runner. Like you're not, you were not a marathoner in, in high school or college.
2: No, my, no, (laughs) I like so far from
1: it. I was going to say, I read an interview with you where you talked about your first experience running on a track and it was actually, your dad was, uh, helping your sister, do a tryout for a track team and you said i want to run the 400 and you sprinted he said well go ahead and you sprinted the first 300 around the track and as i think is the experience with many people who run 400s you just like kind of ate shit at the end and really yeah, totally. really lost your legs <laughs> but finished the 400 but then it became that became sort of your event is that correct
2: yeah yeah i was a I was a 400 meter runner um all through college and i I think even reluctantly so. I think I I like really in my head wanted to be a 200 meter runner and um, actually in seventh and eighth grade I I did everything else. I was a high jumper, I tried to stay after in the long and triple jump, I was a hurdler. And it was almost as if my coaches would like kind of let me do my thing until the end of the season. They'd be like, all right, stop playing around Briggs, get in this 4 (laughs) by 4 (laughs) i <laughs> just be like, dang it. I <laughs> can't get away. Uh, and partially, I didn't want to do what my sister did. You know, my sister was um, a track star um, in every school we were in and, um, you know, went on a full ride scholarship to college to a D1 school and just was so fast. And I wanted to run track too. I mean, it's definitely like a part of my family um, kind of tradition, really. But I, didn't want to do the same events as her and it just wasn't (laughs) that's what was meant to be was that I would do the same events as her
1: (laughs) was she is she older or more older than you that you were not competing with her at all in in like high school she was no
2: I was directly competing with her we were two um we were two years apart at first and we were on the same relay team but I think she would sometimes be the third leg on 4x1 and I'd be... No, she would be first leg on 4x1 and I'd be second when I was in like eighth and ninth grade. Um, and then we were on the same 4x4s. We went to oh, wow. Milrose Games on the same 4x4. We went to Nationals on the same sprint medley. Um, so it was it was, it was was direct and fierce. And then I actually ended up going to a boarding school um, in 10th grade. And it, it was... I think it was when I realized how incredible my public school um, track team at Cornwall um, Central High School had been in in the Hudson Valley, New York, because I didn't realize that all of the incredible competition, um, we were like us, we were neck and neck with Newburgh Free Academy and suffering um, all the time in New York State. And my dad went to Newburgh Free Academy and ran track there. So it was very much like just this tradition of I didn't understand I had a lot of trouble when I I went to boarding school and didn't have the same amount of competition and my season wasn't as long. And, um, you know, my coach would keep me after and make me run extra things and run with the guys and all this stuff to try to keep the same level of um, practice. But it was really it was a very special time running with my sister on the same team. And I didn't I definitely didn't appreciate it at the time.
0: yeah
2: (laughs) But after I left, I did for sure.
1: Sure. There was a line in that same interview where your dad um, said why you were going to to boarding school. And he said, you were there to learn the nonchalance of wealth, which I think is just an incredible thing for a dad to Mm -hmm. say to a high school kid. And I was wondering if if that's relevant enough for you to talk about uh, a little bit what he meant by that.
2: I mean, totally. I think it's interesting. You know, he told me years later also that he thought that I was going to get too close to beating charity and that me leaving public school was the best thing we could have done for both of us <laughs> in terms of having our own spaces. And that was really? I was like, what? He thought I was going to be like, <laughs> But my we, we were so competitive. I think we needed to have our own Space. Um, and yeah, so I went to this boarding school called the Hotchkiss School, which um, wasn't, I adore it. It was an incredible time and introduced me to so much that I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, had the opportunity to do, like leaving the country for the first time on a scholarship from the school. And I had been a straight A student until I went there, and I think I got my first C my sophomore year, and I was like, aghast. I was like, what does this mean? Um, I just it was so um, it was so hard, like, and it was so good for me academically. Um And, you know, the culture of the place was one of extreme privilege. It was, you know, it, the New England preparatory boarding schools are really known as feeder schools for the Ivies, I was going to school with some kids who are friends of mine and the dorms were named after them and the dorms when I went to Yale were still named after them you know and they came from a degree like a kind of richness that I didn't know existed and so I got there and it was like oh you're supposed to be wearing like the double popped polos and like Vera Bradley bags and Jack Rogers sandals and all these things I'd never heard of um were like the culture and so I just kind of got like Plop there, and I feel like actually, with my parents telling me that this is a process of navigating, like, what it means to f- have a secure future, um, and 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 it and privilege. You know, it's this word that we talk about a lot these days, and people, it's really a hot button word, particularly when we when we say white privilege, because people like freak out and they think that if you're saying that someone has privilege because of their whiteness, you're saying that they didn't work hard or they didn't earn things. And it really, I think it means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that you are invited into spaces. When when people see you, they think, oh yeah, you're totally supposed to be here. Come on in, we've been waiting for you. And that is is a it's a way of being treated in this country that really comes with whiteness. And that's really hard for people to think about and understand. And I learned it quite a bit navigating things at Hotchkiss, um, where despite having an incredible time, and I ended up being one of the co-presidents of the school, as the co-president of the school, I also had to co-lead a discussion about um, race for the school because someone had started a white club and someone had used a on, on, on Facebook and used an old KKK poster as the image that went along with the white club on Facebook, you know, when we printed out the club and who was in it, people were so upset um, about it. And so, you know, the, those are things that I was seven, 16, 17 navigating that. And, but I think it prepared me so much for kind of the world I was gonna be in, you know, and the nonchalance my dad talked about, he was like, you know, you're going to be, you're going to school with people who know that they're going to get a car for their 16th birthday, they know that they're going to get into, they'll be able to go to college. And it's not a question of can you afford it? It's not a question of, you know, you know, you can take over your parents' company or you can get a job or you can get that internship with your uncle. And that's not a question, it's a, it's a known. And so what does it mean to grow up that way? And how do those people hold themselves? And it's a weird, weird thing, but it's kind of a lesson in code switching where how do I take up space in a room as if I'm that nonchalant and I'm that secure um, in my daily life? And I definitely learned that. Um, which sounds strange, but I, I always tell people that I've spent a lot of time navigating historically white spaces and I, I know how to do that.
1: So Faith, you were co-class president there, captain of the track team, and then you went to Yale where you were also captain of the track team,
0: correct?
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Brendan, I think Faith was better at track than us. I already said that. (laughs) That's not even a question. Uh,
1: so obviously you did Okay. You were able to well, I don't. I guess that's not obviously, but the the boarding school experience was still enough that you were able to run track in college. Like you were, did you try out for the team, or was it just like, uh, was it a scholarship, or how did how did that come about?
2: Oh, gosh, that's a whole thing. I mean, it's interesting, because I had an incredible time at Yale. And um, on one of my best friends, um, who moved to Portland earlier this year, um, is one of my my friends, Ray from our track team at and you know, where a lot of us are still really close. Um, and to be completely honest, when I was trying to get recruited, I was like, looking at you Miami and UT, which were the schools I thought I was going to go to when I was, you know, I, I wanted to go to LSU like when I was going to uh, track meets at the Armory in New York when I was in 8th and ninth grade. And I realized by my senior year, I didn't have the stats to get recruited at a a place like that Mm -hmm. um, at that point. And and so going Ivy was one of the ways I could still um, run uh, D1. And I I honestly, if my coach, Dr. Kirby, uh, who just, gosh, changed my life um, at Hotchkiss, if it wasn't for him encouraging me to apply to Yale. I don't think I would have gone. Um, As much as I had an incredible time at Hotchkiss, I felt like going to another school with a similar culture was going to be really hard. And I was kind of over it. I kind of didn't, I don't know, want to be at an institution that was maybe going to feel the same. Um, But when I went to Yale for my recruiting weekend, I actually met such incredible people. And my coaches were so cool and like my parents and I got lost and they came and found me and jumped in the car and like brought us back to the office and I just felt so um comfortable there from like the time I stepped on campus that I uh wanted to go um to Yale but uh yeah yeah
1: and still still doing the 400s at at Yale as well.
2: (laughs) Still doing the four. And, you know, I actually, I actually, I wouldn't say I lied, but I omitted the fact that I had run cross country uh, by force at Hotchkiss. So that when I went to Yale, they didn't even know that I'd been running cross. Cause I, I, my coach, Dr. Kirby, who I, as I said, like changed my life. I'd always, I was basically told I had to run cross country um, by my sprints coach, DK. And so uh, my, the cross country coach was this, the head coach, this guy, Charlie Bell, and the women's coach was Miss um, Perkins. And um, gosh, I tried so hard to not run. And I ended up being, it's funny that you said that. Like, he must have been pretty good because I ended up being captain of the cross country team as well. <laughs> and I don't think it was always performance. I think that even when I tried not to, because I tried to quit cross country so many times. And I'd always go to Dr. <laughs> Dr. Kirby's house because we lived, you know, at this boarding school, and I'd be like, schedule a meeting and I'd go and I'd be like, all right, coach, I'm quitting. And he'd be like, but the, you know, like everything that you learn from endurance, it's going to carry over into your life and this, that, and the third. And like, I'd walk out like cross country's so good for me. And then it, I'd like, it would fade away. And I'd be like, how did I get tricked <laughs> again? Like, how am I still on this team? And I honestly, it's very spoiled of me because so many people did want to be cross captain and um three three women uh co-captained the cross-country team and when i got it i was like kind of upset which is so spoiled but i just i wanted to quit so badly i cried after my last cross-country race and it wasn't even the long ones i remember it was tapped and it was like a 2.8 and i cried at the end because i was like i'll never again run this mileage i was so (laughs) happy (laughs) so happy to just only have to run track um and yeah so when I went to Yale it was the four and and coach shoehalter would sometimes send me out to do like longer warm-ups with some of the 800 uh girls and milers and they'd be like chatting the whole time and like so excited and I would come back just like live it and he'd be like Briggs don't don't look at me like that um so I I loathed I loathed distance. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah.
0: 2. 8. So I hard. feel so close to you right now, Faith. <laughs> Faith, you you talking about cross country is the way I thought about the four hundred. Oh gosh. And and I just I have to. Brendan me heard me say this. I think one other time. But I, my confession, since we're I feel like we're confessing <laughs> things right now. You know, in in high school, right? We'd have like the big Friday or Saturday meets. And then you'd kind of, we'd have these like smaller midweek or Tuesday mm-hmm. track meets there. And I just ran the hundred and 200 and one time coming in, in, in front of a Tuesday meet, like not a big deal. My track coach had signed me up, like penciled me in on the 400. And I saw that in the training room. And I just, I grabbed a pencil and <laughs> erased my name and never ran a 400. <laughs> And I, I never, we never talked it's about such it. such no-no. Heard and, <laughs> yep. And like, I don't know how that happened, but he never brought it up and oh I gosh. never ran a 400. And it's one of my proudest accomplishments in life because that race just, that's brutal. So props to you for being the 400 person, but I very much relate to the like, yeah, I'm not doing this, uh, you know, the, the quote unquote long distance thing. Yeah. So anyway, that's my story. <laughs>
2: I'm amazed you got away with that I'm like I know I think I wasn't so bold because even if I had tried to get over on my coach like when I first started my sister would not have allowed that she would have wrote my name right back in (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh that's good
1: I only have one more Yale question and because you lived in Brooklyn for five years and uh went to Yale do you think New Haven pizza is different enough to be classified (sighs) as its own style of pizza or not
0: Ooh, that's a complicated question.
2: Yeah, it's Um, it's controversial too. We ask ask the tough questions on Gosh, that's, you know, I'm going to go with no. Okay. Um, Which New Haveners would be upset about. Well, huh. Okay, I'm not actually answering your question completely. I would say that New York pizza is definitely not the same as New Haven pizza, and New York pizza is the best pizza, and there's no competition or questions on that. So I think... That me- shows my obvious bias and preference for New York pizza and New Haven pizza wasn't enough to make me feel less passionately biased <laughs> for New York pizzas huh. is what I'll say.
1: <laughs> How, about this? How about this way of phrasing the question then? If someone is in New York and they are thinking about, is it worth taking a train trip up to New Haven to get some New Haven pizza? Would you would you say it's worth it?
2: Oh, huh. That's interesting. Um New Haven has a great food scene in general. So I you know, no. I gotta say no. Not for the pizza. Oh. I mean, but also you're okay. you're talking about someone now who has been living in Portland, Oregon for three and a half years and you know, sometimes people say like nostalgia cover like colors nostalgia is like I don't know the actual like uh-huh. phrase, but I think that my rose colored glasses from the nostalgia of living in New York are like probably like blinding. <laughs> like the tint is so strong. So I probably can't see. I'm like, if you're in New York, why would you leave? But yeah. I, I think I'm like, you know, if you're like a tourist and you're in New York for a week, do you go to New Haven for pizza? No. But if you live in New York and you're looking to go check out New Haven, like pizza is definitely one of the things you should do there for sure.
1: God, good answer. That was very diplomatic, actually. <laughs> OK, that's that's Thanks. that's all my my Yale questions. Um, so graduate from Yale. You get it. Do you get a job with the Discovery Channel immediately or did you move to Brooklyn first or how did that go?
2: Oh, gosh, not immediately. No. So I actually went immediately to film school at USC um, in L.A. And I did that for a year and definitely just didn't feel like it was the right fit for me. Um, The film program at USC is amazing and it was very much like Hollywood focused and people were doing docs, um, but I kind of always knew I wanted to do documentary and felt like it was gonna be a good challenge to go learn from the great professors at SC. Um, I didn't realize how much grad school is also about networking. And so I kind of felt like after the first year in a way I was networking in the wrong place if I wanted to do doc. So I I just took a year Mm. off and went back to New York Um, I was living with my sister in uh, Brooklyn Um, at first just sleeping on her couch and I ended up uh, Mm -hmm. becoming a barista a barista I like found this place on Craigslist that I thought was going to be a um, a bar and walked in thinking I could get a bartending gig or a bar back gig and ended up getting hired at this spot that was like way in front of the hipster aesthetic which is now everywhere but at the time like the idea of like hand-painted signs and wooden slatted everything wasn't hadn't quite um been as popular um so i worked at this spot called gray dog in new york which was pretty iconic and um I worked there for, ended up being actually into going back to grad school, but I, um, so I was in New York, did two unpaid internships at um, different doc companies, just one was a small production company up in Harlem, um, the other one was, uh, and that was a, a Chimpanzee Productions so by um, the black filmmaker Thomas Allen Harris, and then the other one I did was at uh, POV American Documentary in Brooklyn and kind of got a sense of what the documentary was like ended up like doing a kickstarter to go to Ghana and try to do a film with another friend of mine and then uh got into uh NYU journalism school and was and transferred into journalism school um from there and I was kind of still working odd jobs I worked for an author James McBride for 3 years and was also teaching digital arts after school and trying to freelance as an animator and um I was kind of in the thick of that that I uh, got hit up by a LinkedIn about a job at the Discovery Channel. Um, so it was definitely a few kind of weird, awesome, reckless New York years and summers in between uh, starting to work at Discovery in uh, 2015.
1: Okay. LinkedIn works for some people. I don't know. That's. I'm, I know. i glad you had a story because I'm like, what is this? It was so
2: does. weird. I had to tell my mom she was right about LinkedIn. <laughs>
1: Man, that's a couple of good couple of good mom points in this in this podcast. <laughs> yeah,
2: she knows what's up.
1: As you're navigating the the job scene and stuff like that, are you? Is this at the point in time where you're you're starting to run more distance? Where you're starting to hate 2.8 miles less uh, in New York, or how's where's that transition?
2: You know, I think that as many of us find that come to running from different places, my confusion about what i was doing with my life probably led to the distance running. I i felt really embarrassed about leaving USC and i i had tons of friends in New York that all lived up in Harlem and i moved to Brooklyn and like didn't tell them i was back in New York. It was this very strange thing where you know having always been like this kid that seemed to be doing everything right from like boarding school to college and I just felt like I was in such a pressure cooker all the time that I think when I did something that you know nobody could be like proud of like put this like quote unquote dropout title on myself I was I really struggled with it um and that's when I started running longer distances and I read Born to Run around that time which um was really impactful for me because I had had six different stress fractures in college in my shins. And I spent so much time in the training room. I I wow. was taping up every day. I ice bath every single day after practice, just trying to like eat Motrin and run. Um, and you know, so many pool workouts. Like I wasn't, I never got to train to the level that I wanted to in terms of performance because I was so hurt all the time. Um, and reading Born to Run, um, I felt like I was learning all these things that uh, in terms of minimalist running, et cetera, it didn't work for everyone, but that was what I should have been doing. And, uh, and learning that the information about that was just coming out while I was at the end of college, I was able to let go of some of the resentment I had about getting hurt. I felt like It must have been the program's fault that I was hurt all the time and um, when I learned that kind of the information was new, I felt like I could try again to run differently. Um, And when you drop out of school and you're working at a bar and sleeping on your sister's couch, you're kind Mm -hmm. of like looking for a way to control something. So I started running. I went really strict in the macrobiotic diet, which is like pretty out there. And yeah, I remember like slowly building up mileage to running like five miles and I was ecstatic about it. It was so weird, but it felt like I could do something good. (laughs) Um, Yeah.
1: Okay. Interesting. Are you, were you running with your sister at all now (laughs) that you were both adults out of college or was it?
2: No, my sister had a really tough time in college. Um, For a lot of reasons, um, and, and wasn't running at that point in time. Um, so it felt, and she was a hardcore sprinter. So it definitely was like, she wasn't interested in what I was up to. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: But a few years later, actually, I, I, you know, I I went from starting to distance running and I um, ran with a crew, Black Rose NYC for a while, which a friend of mine from London had, um, she, well, she, Gabby Kelly, she ran on my same relay, my four by four in undergrad. And I think Charity was actually my sister's charity. I think Charity was going to London for a business trip and I. Was like, oh, you should see Gabby, and so I reached out. And I was like, Charity's coming to town, and she started telling me about this crew called Track Mafia that she was running with in London. And I was like, what do you mean running, girl? Like, we don't do that anymore. We're not on teams. And she was like, nah, nah, you should check out Black Roses. Like, you'd like it. Um, and so that I ended up joining uh, Black Roses, which is like a crew of runners in New York, and um, that really probably brought me into like actually considering myself a distance runner and I trained uh, like for my first half marathons and just I think I showed up and we were doing 1k repeats the first day of practice and I was like what is this like I still was like you know doing a 1k on a track when you don't like you would cringe at an 800 or a 4 it was just like repeats so it was crazy like I felt like they were a bunch of yeah. absolutely crazy people and actually then I became one of those crazy people and it was a huge part of my life so many of my good friends are from there and um it was an incredible experience to bring me into like this like global running community that um i didn't know existed so i think running became very much about community and where you can go and i've gone to mexico city and be put up in a house by someone i didn't know because they were like oh like faith from roses is coming to town like who can who can put her up? When I went to Paris, I hit up a group called Paris Run Crew, and they were like, oh, we'll put a tour of the city together, and we'll, like, run you through it. I'm, like, chasing these, like, fast Parisian runners through the streets. And, I mean, I've had, like, amazing experiences mm-hmm. through running, and that's the case with, like, crews that we know in Tokyo and Seoul and Beijing and Germany. Now, um, in Toronto, I had great experiences with Parkdale, Rose Runners up in Toronto, 3Run2 um, in Chicago. Like, there's a whole... Uh, community of these like really cool running groups that a lot of times don't take themselves too seriously and aren't really necessarily there for the speed. And then sometimes they do, and they're really fast and they're doing the hype cheer squads at the marathons and the majors. And it's a really cool community. And that's kind of what brought me into uh, considering myself a distance runner.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, Sorry, I'm just kind of going through a timeline of your life right now. Um, (laughs) No worries. You end up leaving New York and moving to Portland. Is that when you discover trail running or had you done a little bit of it?
2: Um, The first trail running I did was with um, Black Roses. Uh, They had done a weekend called Bin Trail. (laughs) Um, And we went up to Beacon, New York and the Hudson Highlands area and camped and went trail running. And um, I had a blast and um, it was really fun. And... um, that was kind of my first experiences. And it was interesting because in Beacon, you know, we're looking out over Cornwall and Newburgh, the area that I was from. And um, I was amazed that I'd never thought to run the trails, like running had so belonged on the track in that point in my life. And I had actually spent pretty much every summer uh, working as a camp counselor and being a camper at a, a summer camp in that area. So I'd hiked a lot and I'd brought kids on hikes and I knew the area pretty well, but I just had never thought to run. Uh, so it was an interesting kind of mix of things. Then when I moved to Portland, it was like trail running was kind of what you did. Um, and I was working for Columbia Sportswear at the time, and they had kind of gotten my bio wrong for this thing called Directors of Toughness. So I remember moving out there, and um, my bio said I was an ultra-marathoner. And I was like, whoa, 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 guys. I'm... <laughs> I've never done more than a half marathon and everyone was kind of like quiet, like, oh. And then I think three months later, I was assigned as like the coolest job ever, but I was assigned a 100K stage race in the Andes (laughs) as my job. And uh, I was like, what? So that was my first uh, ultra (laughs) experience. (laughs) Yeah, Portland definitely solidified trail running for me though, for sure.
1: So did you, were, were you like, oh, wow, I better figure out how to.
2: Yeah, I think they told me like December 21st that I was going to do a, a February 2nd race. And I went back to New York and asked a bunch of people that ran way more than me a bunch of questions. And I like inevitably ran myself into a complete disaster and ruin and, and injury and I hobbled a lot in the Andes, but I finished and it was amazing. And I learned a lot. I mean, talk about humbling and all the lessons we learned through running. I, I just learned that sometimes it doesn't matter if people know that you're a quote unquote good runner. Or it doesn't matter how fast you're going or how competitive you are. And I met like such amazing people. like. A bunch of old dudes who wanted to like introduce me to their daughters afterwards, and like I'm still in touch with some of these guys. Are like you have a home in Argentina? Like if you ever come back, and you know it was probably like one of the most beautiful running experiences I've ever had. And the first day I finished, I was in tears. I was I was called my dad, and I was like I don't think I can do this. And called my coach Knox at the time, and he was like you know wake up tomorrow and take it day by day and see what's up and um there was a guy so in stage races sorry it's a bit of a tangent but um in stage races depending on how they go but you'll have like a tent that you're sleeping in each night and they'll bring your stuff from tent to tent. so your tents are numbered so I think I was in like 315 this guy was in like 308 or something and heard me crying in my tent um he was like two tents down and and, and later out he he was talking to me and I'm very uh I love that I speak Spanish because I've gotten to have some incredible conversations. And he was like, I could not disfrutarla. And that means like, you need to enjoy it. And he actually had also signed up way in advance, way in advance than me, you know, and these things are hard to get into and they cost a lot of money. And I hadn't even had to put that like sacrifice into it Um, because I was doing it as part of my job and he mm-hmm. had gotten injured and, you know, he was out there and he was like, I'm out here on the trail. I'm making other people smile. I'm making other people laugh. I'm just having a good time. Like I could not disfrutarla. And I was like, wow, like, he's so right, you know? Um, so yeah, I've learned a lot from the people I've met through this kind of trail running for sure.
1: Yeah. It feels like it was apt for the director of toughness job that it was actually tough.
2: (laughs) It was so tough. (laughs) Yeah. That was a crazy time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So where, where are you running? Where are your favorite spots in Portland to do, to do trail runs at this point?
2: Oh man, Ha ah, love Forest Park. It's like unbeatable. You know, it's more than eighty miles of trail in within the city limits. Actually, yesterday was my partner Adam's birthday, and for his thirty third birthday, he decided to do thirty three miles. So I dropped him off at the top of um, Wildwood Trail uh, yesterday, which is a thirty mile trail, and he ran the first fifteen and then mm-hmm. hiked the rest. And I met him for the last ten, and then we uh, went the other mile to his brother's house and then walked two miles through our neighborhood last night to get to the 33 um but Port- I-, I love forest park and um i'm out in the gorge uh right now uh the columbia gorge and um on the washington side but we're so lucky where we live There's so many incredible trails and I feel like we're still like daily discovering them and I fish too (laughs) um so sometimes we go out to a river to fish and like realize oh this is a great running trail and if you haven't been to the Pacific Northwest like once you walk into the trails and see them kind of our trees, because we we're in a temperate rainforest, like the trees are covered in moss and they just look like something out of a storybook. It's it's so beautiful. I, I I think every time I step on the trail, I just remember how lucky I am to to live out here and to just be able to like see, see such a cool place.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so, Faith, your film, um, you're talking a bit about um, not feeling like, at first not feeling like um, an advocate or uh, a conservationist, uh, someone who feels like that's their place, I guess, in the outdoors. And talk a little bit about uh, people of color not necessarily feeling welcome in a lot of spaces because of the history of the US. And I think it would have been a couple months after the, the your film came out, you wrote a piece on Medium about uh, Ahmaud Arbery. It's called Ahmaud Arbery, The Continued and Condoned Lynching of Black America, um, which um, if anybody wants to google it and read it it's a it's a fascinating take on uh or fascinating just encapsulation of history of race in america um that boils it down to why you know like why are things like this still happening and why is this uh still a thing and how did that come about that this is the way we deal with things in america i was wondering if you would sort of talk a little bit about what inspired that i know um you know uh, the news of ahmaud arbery didn't take off until about two months after he had been killed. He was, for, if anybody's not familiar at this point, he was just running in a neighborhood in uh, Georgia, I believe, and people, these two white guys chased him down because they thought he might've been burglarizing a house and he ended up being shot uh, and killed, um, which is in effect a modern day lynching. Um, but it didn't really galvanize the US until a couple months later when the video actually came out of it happening um, I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about how, you know, you're a documentary filmmaker, but you're also the writings that you have on Medium are great and um how you decided this is how I'm going to do this and this is how I'm going to get this out there. It was obviously too long for an Instagram caption, I guess, but how did you decide on the medium because you have such a different many different ways you can can, can communicate this stuff?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um I think, you know, I I studied African American studies and film studies in undergrad. Um, those were my those were my majors, and my kind of focus within that was representation in media. Um, so, whose stories are told? How are they told? And why are they told? And I did a lot of deep dives into specifically the representation of Black women in media, from early caricatures and stereotypes, and how those still exist and and keep coming back today. And because I was an African American studies major, I learned a lot about black history. And so for me, the periods of our country that we went through as as a country um, and how they affected black America is like very common knowledge. Um, and so I sometimes forget that, like when I say reconstruction, you know, that's not, people aren't immediately thinking like, oh yeah, the time after um the end of slavery where you know it looked like we had this sliver of hope for black america where things were going to change and then you know we decided that we would rather like pacify the south and undo all the progress that had been made in, in black america like in my mind that's like and i and i think the way that i grew up i have two parents that are educators and i got books put in my hands about American history really early, my mom's undergrad was in American history. Um, So I I just, I realized that what's common knowledge for me isn't common knowledge. Um, And it's purposely hidden from us, you know, and so I think that when something happens related to race and racism in America, which happens every day, and people are surprised uh, the black community many times it's it's infuriating that there's surprise um, because it's just every day. Um, and you know, in 2014 and 2015, I spent a lot of time out in Black Lives Matters marches in New York. And I was so, so hurt and distraught over the killings of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Eric Garner. Um, and at that time, I actually did a, a piece, which was an animated piece, um, called Black Man, which was a take on Pac-Man, which um, I put into a, an art exhibit called Respond that happened at Smack Mellon Gallery in New York. And it was each layer of Pac-Man was another decade. And the black man was being chased by another thing. And mm. so whether the thing he was chomping was fried chicken, and the thing he was being chased by were cops. Or the thing he was munching on was cotton and the thing he was being chased by was the KKK. I have already spent a lot of time thinking about the historical context of police brutality and of our everyday lives and the confusion over, you know, I think I kept hearing the term modern day lynching when it came to Ahmaud Arbor and and people were so against accepting that reality. And so I felt like, what I can offer as someone that has a background in American history is trying to contextualize it so that it doesn't seem so surprising and so un like people don't want to hear it because it's really ugly and um, I think it's really important because we can't keep being surprised every day when horribly unjust things happen in our country, whether it's specific to the continued disenfranchisement and violence and the against black people or it's an all of the horrific harms done against people of color in our country the constant surprise just stops us from progress because we spend so much time like oh my god how could this possibly happen and the people who have been having it happen to them for so long are just like how can you be surprised um so i think my hope is that if we can become more in tune with our own histories maybe we can actually start moving forward knowing them and knowing like what our true legacy is and our true legacy as a country is not this like liberty for all that we're taught and it's not this like america is the greatest country in the world in every single way and you know in the article i write about it as the idea of american exceptionalism um because even during the pandemic before all this happened people kept being Mm -hmm. like oh i can't wait till things go back to normal and i saw so many black people being like i don't want to go back to normal normal's horrible like it needs to be different and it's so i don't think it could happen any other way without the pandemic and then the killing of george floyd Breonna taylor nina pop tony mcdade and amon arbery right at the end of the pandemic i don't i don't know if if the reaction would have been so strong as it has been because we're all so heightened because of the pandemic. And so I'm grateful that people finally seem to have the time to care and pay attention. And I I hope we are actually experiencing a moment of true change. But yeah, I I wrote on Medium, actually, because uh, a friend of mine a couple of years ago was like, you write so much. And I was like, what are you talking about? I never write. He was like, Instagram, you write on Instagram all the time. And like, I'm definitely one of those too long, didn't read like Instagram captioners for sure. Um, And having gone to journalism school, I was actually kind of embarrassed that the most writing I was doing was on Instagram. And I was like, I can actually write so much more. So starting a medium was kind of my personal challenge to um, you know, be able to explore some of the ideas that I care about in longer than an Instagram caption. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a, you wrote a great piece on, on dreads as well. And I, I'm almost like, I just wish you had it on a personal website because Medium has a paywall and you can only see two or three articles per, per month or whatever. So it's like Hmm. sort of an obstacle. Good idea. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not your manager. So, but
2: (laughs) maybe you should be. I'm like, oh, that's a, it's a good idea.
1: (laughs) So are you at this point? I mean, I don't know. Personally, to me, it does, I, to went to the march in Denver and um, one of the one of the nights to protest and um, it does feel like a lot more white people are involved. I just saw a headline this morning that the difference this time with Black Lives Matter is that white people are involved. Do you do you have hope right now? It seems like there are some signs like Confederate statues being toppled, the NFL making a statement, NASCAR banning Confederate flags. Or are you kind of just cautiously optimistic going, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens in six months? Or how, how do you feel? I
2: mean, I, I definitely started, I think, worse than cautiously optimistic. My immediate reaction was like pure skepticism. I, I kind of was like, why now? You know, and um, I wrote also and ended up just putting it on Medium just to have it there. But I was kind of rawly saying like, why now you know um because it was weird you know what happened on instagram was like i think in two days or three days or four days i don't know i got like two to three thousand new followers and more than that and i was freaked out i was like what are you doing here um and it was a large majority of white people and my first reaction was like i i i got overwhelmed because i felt like i didn't have anything new to tell anyone and i felt like the people that they should be paying attention to are are people like rachel cargo and rachel ricketts and people that really are so much more um central in conversations about equity and race and i i felt kind of like i didn't feel like i was i should be centered even um and so i think i just kind of got freaked out um and and i wanted to make it clear you know i think One of the things I've been concerned about um, on a smaller like personal level is that because my reactions to things are very um, to educate and to bring in historical background I didn't want people to think that like they could choose a palatable voice to listen to that like oh Faith you know she explains things and she brings in the history and that's that's how this should be done you know and I'm like people are in so much pain and and it's pain and it's hurt and it's anger and it's not going to be polished and it's not always going to teach something and sometimes it's just going to be a hard 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 pill to swallow when someone's saying you're a part of the cause you're a part of the ongoing legacy and and I and I wanted those voices to get all of the attention that they deserve because they're that is so valid and so valuable and people need to hear how hurt My community and so many communities have been for such a long time and so I think I was worried that people were gonna be thinking that like there was a nice way to have these conversations about violence and death and and hurt systemically and Mm -hmm. so I was really skeptical for that um because I think for for me you know seeing these protests now across the country I was like waking up like it was Groundhog Day. I was like, where were you five years ago when we were crying in the streets? You know, when Michael Brown's body Mm -hmm. was lying for hours when Trayvon Martin was killed. When George Zimmerman got off, you know, he's a freaking vigilante. The people that killed Amon Arbery weren't even the cops, you know, and the cops have their own issues. But these are random Vigilantes who decided like citizen justice was a thing and and it was fine. It like was fine when it was a black person being killed. And so I was very skeptical at first. Um, and the more I learn and I think everyone's been learning and I've been learning too. And I, I now do feel hopeful that this is different and that the concept maybe just needed to be that it's not enough to not be racist you need to be anti-racist even though that was said years and years and years ago it seems to finally be being understood in a widespread way now and maybe that was the thing like all of the things had to you know play out in this exact way for that to finally be understood And, and i see Changes being made. I mean, in Portland, you know, and in so many cities, we're already seeing, um, you know, cops taking, armed cops being taken out of high schools. And, you know, people are thinking about how they can defund the police and um, money is going to be moved into education. And, you know, I, I, I do, I see change happening already. And that Gives me great hope um, because we've been very broken for a very long time, and if we're already seeing solutions, I'm I'm very encouraged that things are going to be different, and maybe people will stop shying away from the conversation because it's ugly. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely encouraged.
0: It's funny, I as I've been trying to just take in some of this and process, I find myself there's like this weird, like I don't know, dialectic, like you know, you see some things and you're like, my God, nothing is any better from like the 1800s. And then there are other moments where it's like, well, wait a second. I mean, we have overcome some institutional like laws, fucking laws like have changed. And it's like, okay, well maybe they are better. And then you're back like a minute later to being like, nope, nothing has actually changed. And, as I've been trying to think about this, it's like, maybe that's just always the way it needs to be that we, right? Like that we just, I don't know, 10 years from now, maybe we will still be like, it is as bad as it was. And yet like we are, there's this, I, I don't know. I don't, you're the historian, right? Like not me, but like that there is this, pulling and pushing and there's a step back and something forward Um, because I am asking the same question like are we just in a are we just in a dumb moment with short attention spans and everything's about to just go back to how it was and god that's the most depressing thought right and like so how do we like how do we think about the changes that have happened and how do we think about the changes that haven't happened, right? And um, I don't know. I I kind of, you know, it's like this is the best of times and it is the worst of times. And maybe the only way to keep advancing movements is to hold both of those things at the same time. I don't know if that makes any sense.
2: Oh, to- you yeah, it totally hmm. does. I mean, I think, yeah, like it's always going to be – a tug of war in a way, partially because people in power want to retain that power. And very often retaining that power means pitting the masses against each other so that the masses don't figure it out and push them out of power. And I I think when we look at the history of our country, that's what we see probably the most. And, you know, it's looked different where people in power, you know, said only these people are worthy. Those people aren't actually human. These people can't be here, you know, or like the language has changed over time. Oh, those people are actually illegal. Like that's not you can't have illegal people. Like, what does that even Mm -hmm. mean? But the way that we've the language that pits us against each other and, you know, says something like, you know, and, and back to whiteness, like whiteness as a standard has been used so much against poor white people to stop them from being able to actually collaborate with poor blacks and poor Latinos and poor Asians and support indigenous people and realize like, Hey, we're all down here getting screwed. Um, but, you know, this standard of whiteness as somehow more worthy has oftentimes stopped that collaboration from happening. Um, you know, and so I think it is, there's there's always going to be a tug of war of power dynamics. Um, and we're always going to take, you know, one step forward, two steps back and, and be, you know, moving or two steps forward, one step back, ideally, so that we're yeah. actually still moving forward. Um, I think, you know... I mean, that's also why I think reconstruction is so fascinating, because that era is one of the most obvious uh, examples of how that happens, where progress is made, and then we decided as a country, oh, actually, it's more important to preserve, um, you know, democracy, at the time the parties were flipped, but it's more important to preserve Republican um, presidency, and so we will undo all these forward steps for Black people. We won't do um, reparations, et cetera, and it won't go away until the problem's fixed. I mean, the fact that we have bills right now about reparations in the House is incredible and mind blowing. Um, and 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 until we until we mm-hmm. fix it, ideally, people will not stop and will not let up. And so I think I think a lot of times when change happens, it's people have pushed so hard that those in power have to give a little bit. And then they try to put things back to the status quo, like, see, we did some stuff and it will keep, it will keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. And so people need to just not relent um, to really make change. And I think that there, it's a, it's a really important time in our country right now for white people to not relent when it comes to equity Um, And for whatever reason that people are feeling right now that they cannot relent and that they are going to listen and that they are going to try to make a difference, it it can't end in an Instagram post or a hashtag. It has to be, you know, and I I honestly tell people, I'm like, put it on your calendar like every other Thursday. What who what politician are you going to write a letter to? What organization are you going to support? What research are you going to do to educate yourself um, about the true history of our country? Because, I mean, Oregon, you know, Oregon has a crazy racist history. And and one of my friends posted a bunch of slides that Oregon Public Broadcasting put out the other day. And people were aghast. They they couldn't believe um, the history of Oregon. And I had learned it when I moved here because I was Googling, like, black neighborhood mm-hmm. in Portland, trying to figure out where I could get some, like, food in a hair shop. And I found 168 page pdf about the extreme racism that led to i mean the redlining the gentrification and just the history of not protecting or taking care of black people in oregon that started out as a a state where black people were not allowed so it wasn't a slave state or a free state it was a no black people state so literally like if you came here and you had slaves you had to free them and then they would be kicked out and if they didn't they would be beat or jailed um and you don't learn that and i was an african-american studies major and i was a gas, And I remember calling friends that were FM major. I was like, yo, did you know about Oregon? I'm like, none of us knew. So it goes back to educating ourselves about where we live and whether that's like the black history of our country or the indigenous history of the places that we love to play and run and the place where we live and be like, oh, wow, like there were forced removals on the place that I call my hometown. And I think I'm such a local because I've been running in these mountains for 10 years, but that's nothing compared to how long indigenous people... You know we're the first stewards and caretakers of this place, so I think we just have to complicate um, everything in order to try to get to something that makes more sense.
1: I'm just gonna, I'm just going to chime in real quick and to to bring this back to running. I would, I'm, Faith, is this? Would you say that progress is definitely not a 100, 200, or a 400? It's more like a. <laughs> a marathon or an ultra marathon where it's just the totally continuous we
2: i think a lot of my runner friends have been going back to some of our favorite running metaphors and everything from just like sinking into the pain cave and being there while we learn this stuff and i honestly think i'm like as athletes we are the most ready for this kind of uncomfortable training right we we know how to be uncomfortable. And when we're, you know, that's when you're in high school, when you're in college, regardless of like the degree to which you're doing it, even now as adults that are like throwing ourselves into, you know, Brendan how to run a hundred miles. Like what, why we're doing these things to our body is sometimes beyond us. but we're, we're, we're used to discomfort, you know, and we are, we're so ready to be having these tough conversations, I think. And it's not. Certainly not a sprint, you know, if it was that easy, it would have happened if everyone just had to run a 400 for racial justice, like, bam, you know, we can get a lot of people who cringe at the four to do it. But this is far from it.
0: Faith, we got to let you get going. Um, Thanks so much. We got to do this again. So we're going to bug you.
2: <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I'd, lo- I'd love, I would love to keep the conversation going. Thank you so much for the invite.
0: Yes please come back. We are going to put a link to the show notes of this episode. Please, everyone, check out this land. Uh, I assure you, it it just took on a pretty different meaning and I think a rich one. Um, And uh, Faith, we look forward to talking with you again and uh, good luck with everything you're working on right now.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Faith and Brendan for the conversation. And again, check out Faith's film, This Land, which you can find among other places on Faith's website, faithebriggs.com, or in the show notes to this episode, uh, or go ahead and Google This Land Doc, and it'll get you there. I want to say thanks also to Jared Farley for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, we hope that you are doing well, and until next time, please be safe, please take good care of yourself and everyone else, please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.